All right, so we've been walking through this movement of Jesus, and we've been calling it Rise as we've explored this uh, early portion of the book of Acts, and each week we've been examining different figures that have stepped into the, uh, into the place of their moment in which they would get all the prominent attention. And we're going to look at this man named Stephen, but what I want to put on the table here or from the very get-go is that his grace, that is the grace of Jesus in our lives, it'll do something to us. It meets us right where we're at, and he will, he will embrace us right where we're at. This is his promise. That is what grace does. But he will also simultaneously birth a desire to boldly acknowledge, stand in, and affirm what we know to be true. And we will find ourselves in a tension point. The truth of the matter is following Jesus creates tension within the human soul. And it confronts us with things. And it not always creates comfort. Sometimes it creates discomfort. And it calls us to a point. And I have to say, I think his calling to us to become truth seekers is one of those things that will cause us to decide how we respond and whether or not we are willing to face some fears and courageously step forward. I say that because uh, to me, this perhaps more than most is a rather personal uh, topic or theme. See, I have had a relationship with truth. I think we all have relationships with truth. But before I came to a point of faith, I have to tell you, and I'm not happy about this, it's, it's quite embarrassing. Before I knew Jesus, I tended to avoid truth wherever I sniffed it out, wherever I felt it. I tended to hide from it. I tended to pretend it wasn't there or that I wasn't aware. I would behave aloof to it. I tried to mask it. I tried to cover it up. And I became a person who, um, well, in my, certainly in my youth, was rather adept at figuring out how to hide it, pretend it, deny it, lie it, twist it. And it wasn't until I came to a point of faith that actually that started to shift in my own life. And the bottom line was that I was uncomfortable with it. Why? Because, you know, we live in a society today where we want to know that, that people are saying and living what is true. We do. And things are examined extensively. And everything is brought out of the woodwork. And everything is put into the open. Because we want to make sure they are being truthful. We live in that. That is the society we live in. But simultaneously, we have an increasingly hard time looking at what is true within and declaring what is true about us individually and being comfortable with what is true in our soul. And I was there. Many times I'm still there. And that tension point that is the tension point I would love for us to explore because it was when I came to a point of faith that I actually discovered, I, it was, it was, I found it impossible to step into a point of personal truth 
before experiencing the amazing grace of Jesus. And only when I received the grace of God in my own life did I find myself, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, it's just me, found myself feeling safe enough to start acknowledging things and to start recognizing things and to step into moments of honesty, not about others, but about me. And that was the hinge point. That was the turning point. And you know, the thing is, here I am over 20 years later, and I have to say, that process for me, it still happens. Yeah, I think it's only in the confines of safety that we are comfortable becoming seekers of truth, not of the externals, but the internals. And this is, this is something that I share because um, I don't think I'm alone. I think most of us are afraid. I, I think it's safe to say that we, we feel far more comfortable fearing what is true about us and avoiding it and denying it than we are declaring it. It's why, by the way, I think in, in our society, when we see somebody who steps into that moment and they own themselves and they own everything about them and they declare it, something inside of us perks up. You ever notice that? Something inside of us pays attention. What is that? And how did they get it? And how do I get it? And we see it and we admire it. When somebody steps into the public scene, not just uh, not lying, but acknowledging, affirming, and declaring, something inside of us is inspired. Why? Because it's so rare and it's increasingly rare. And it's why for me, as we explore this man, Stephen's life, my hope, my true genuine hope and prayer is that we may sense something of an arising courage within our own soul to say, I want to be more of that. Because I am convinced God wants us, wants us to become bold truth seekers that always begins at a personal level before it ever becomes a public thing. In fact, if you open up your handout, I think we're gonna see an example of what this might look like. And we see it in Acts 6, verse 8, and we'll just jump right into it from the very beginning here. And we're told in verse 8 that Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, he performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. Uh, we have to know this. Stephen was one of seven men entrusted with the dis distribution of goods in his community of faith. He was a man of integrity, trustworthiness. He was a man of high character, but he was also a man of faith. And what we're, we're led to believe here is that he, Stephen, was a man that rose head and shoulders above all his other peers. Why? Because we're told he was full of God's grace. Look at this combination. Grace and power. 
Power that showed up through amazing miracles, Luke says, and signs among the people that there was external evidence to what was going on within his soul internally. And we're told in verse 9, look at this. But one day, some men, as he is serving the community of faith, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, which is another way of saying this was a gathering of men and women who were either descendants of former slaves or had themselves been slaves and were now free. And these men and women had come from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called. And we're told that they, they were the ones that Stephen was there with them. And they started to debate with him. And they were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. They were from all different parts of the world. In fact, I asked him to give us an idea of what this might look like visually. Because Jerusalem would be, at that moment, if we could put that map up, that would be great. But at that moment, Jerusalem would be the epicenter of this movement of Jesus. And in that time in the Roman Empire, there were just extensive roads that were created. The famous all roads lead to to Rome was the, well, it was the reality of the day. And that created an extensive empirical reach, which meant that people could really, for one of the first times in history, mobilize themselves in ways they could not before. And so there were people from all over. You could see it from east of Jerusalem and from the northern parts of Africa. And they, they were there. And they were a part of this synagogue of former slaves or descendants of former slaves. And they were in opposition to what Stephen was saying. So this is the context. And we're told that as they are opposing him, verse 10, none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. It's another way of saying they debated and debated and debated, but they could never undermine. He continually held his ground. And he was able to resist their desire to silence him or marginalize him, or discredit him. And so they went head on in opposition to what Stephen was talking about. What was he speaking about? He was speaking about Jesus. And recognizing that they were unable to oppose him, we're told that they, verse 11, persuaded some men to lie about Stephen saying, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. It's one of these fascinating accounts where it's put there, front and center. They could not oppose Jesus on the basis of facts. So they sought to undermine and silence this movement by moving toward deception and lies. It's an interesting thing. In my opinion, it is a difficult challenge to oppose Jesus' voice and reality with truth. We can't do it. The only way to do it is to move into deception. And this is what they did. They employed a tactic as old as time. They may have leveraged some influence over a couple people, holding certain things over them, perhaps a suggestion laced with the threat. We know this about you. 
But if you help us, no one else will know. All you have to do is say what we tell you to say. Will you do that? They readily acquiesced. And we're told here that as they step into what they know not to be true, they step into a lie, verse 12, they proclaim this. We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders and teachers of religious law, and they arrested Stephen and they brought him before the high council, the Sanhedrin, the most powerful political arm and religious institution in his day. And the lying witnesses said, verse 13, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. In order for us to truly try to grasp the gravity of what's going on here, is you know what they are doing? They're, yes, they're falsely accusing Stephen, but they're touching on the two most sacred pillars of their society. And he's basically, they're basically saying the temple and Mosaic law are in danger under this man's teaching. And this Jesus he talks about, he opposes it all. It would be the equivalent of somebody being falsely accused of one of the most polarizing topics of today's politically charged environment. It would be the equivalent of somebody being charged with racism, sexism. It's a death blow to one's reputation. To recover from that is next to impossible. And they knew what they were doing. They employed the hardest blow they could to Stephen. And it had its desired effect. The entire body became roused with frustration and anger and accusation and skepticism. And there was there was so much going on, a storm started brewing as they brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin, stood him, allowed the accusers to vocalize what they were saying, and he is standing there. And all the while, as this crowd is becoming very much uh, enraged with what is going on, you see Stephen, the contrast is actually amazing. We're told in verse 15 that at this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen not unlike a dominating, intimidating stare, but what they see is not a man who is afraid. What do they see? They see something else. Instead of trying to dominate him, they are attracted to him. Why? Because his face became as bright as an angel's. This is to say that there was Stephen in the midst of this storm brewing all around him, outside of his control, about to truly threaten to decimate him. And there's Stephen. And Luke, the best way he can describe it is his face was as bright as an angel's face. It's, uh, in my opinion, it's his way of saying, you know, this was going on and heaven was paying attention. And Stephen wasn't alone. And the reflection, this is the insinuation, evangelic brightness is coming off his face. Peaceful, strong, secure. It's remarkable. 
in the face of such severe opposition and intimidation, we're told in verse 1 of the following chapter that then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? And then Stephen ends up giving the most extensive oral history of Israel. And throughout, you could read it for yourself. It's a fascinating recounting. The theme that he continues to drum, that he continues to hit throughout his entire recounting of Israel's history is essentially this. God has been trying to reach you the entirety of your existence. And he has been rejected by you more times than we can say. And in his kindness and in his grace and in his love for you, he has sent men and women to you prophets. He has sent people to reach you, to pull you, to speak to you, to love you. And every single time that this has happened, our people have rejected him and resisted him. In fact, he says, and it epitomizes, he says, listen, this, this has been the course of history. As God has lovingly, truthfully extended his arm toward us, we have resisted it. In fact, in verse 37, we're told, he says this, Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. But even then, our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. It's not Jesus who's opposed to Moses. It's us. And they rejected him, and they wanted to return him to Egypt, they, they rejected him and the one he spoke of. And then it, he builds, he's speaking, he's pointing toward the Messiah who is Jesus. And then he culminates, what Stephen does is he begins in a point of peace and truth and grace. And he tries to lovingly speak to them and it culminates in the most severe rebuke he could ever deliver to the most powerful body present in front of him. It's a remarkable evidence of what conviction can do and how much power truly comes out of integrity. We're told in verse 51, he says to them, you stubborn people, look at this. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. You can no longer hear it. You've been so resistant. You can't hear it anymore. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did. Don't you get it? That's what you're doing right now. No, name one prophet our ancestors didn't per persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered not but months ago. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. And now you're resisting this. And you know what Stephen is doing? Stephen is not in any way stepping into the trap of defending himself. Instead, he recognized they weren't opposing him. They were opposing the one he spoke of. They were opposing Jesus. And Jesus... Stephen basically says, needs no defense. Really, it says more about you than it does about Jesus, how you are responding right now. It says a lot about your heart and a lot about your inability to hear and recognize truth when it's right in front of you.
in my opinion, Stephen is saying this with boldness and compassion. And in that, you know, their response as he calls them out, their response is indicative of exactly what he was saying. Verse 54, we're told the Jewish leaders were infuriated with Stephen's accusations and they shook their fists at him with rage. Which in my mind, I don't know if you've ever been called out by somebody with something you didn't want to be called out for. Has that ever happened? (laughs) I don't know how many of us are happy when that happens. Like, yeah, (laughs) you nailed it. (laughs) Thank you. Now, see, I think they're very human, and we might be a little bit more like them than we might be willing to recognize and admit. They were so angry, enraged, sophisticated political beings of high means and status and power, lost their cool. So penetrating were the words. So on the nose. They had to decide. And they made the decision. They made it. And we'll see it in the coming week. But I want to I wanna think about this in a different way. I want to say that this kind of serves us as an example. This, Stephen is an amazing figure here. I don't know that to say... This is what we are, we'll never be in that situation. But it does represent something to us. And it does illuminate what it looks like to be on this faith journey. Whether we are people on a faith journey or on a journey exploring faith, no matter where we might be, we need to know a couple things that this, I think, puts to the surface. One, Sean put it out there, is you know what this reminds us of? Skepticism is not a threat to Jesus. It... Jesus is never threatened by questions or doubts or the intrigue of wanting to push against what is stated, ever. He's never threatened. He's absolutely secure with who he is and capable of handling any examination, any examination we might want to give. Jesus is not threatened by skepticism. And thank God, that that's the case. But I'll tell you what, stubbornness is a threat to faith. And there is a difference. There is a difference. See, skepticism, see, in my opinion, I think Stephen started out as a skeptic. I think he was one who had questions and doubts, and he asked them, and he prodded, and he pushed. And when he came to know Jesus, not all of them were answered, but enough for him to discover there's something worth trusting. There's somebody who's worth following. And as he followed Jesus, and as he came to know Jesus, and as he applied Jesus' words to his own life, my opinion is this skeptic became one who followed Jesus and then loved Jesus. And the one who may have, at one point in his life, not really wondered, not really sure about who Jesus is, became one who was an advocate of Jesus. And was willing to say whatever needed to be said that was true about Jesus. Because he knew it to be true in his own soul. See, to Stephen, it wasn't external reality. It was internal. And, And in my opinion... Many of us, some of us, listen, this is large categorization, okay, generalization. It, it's just, what I mean to say is there are many, many things here 
that may not be 100% true, but I, I think largely it's safe to say there are, there are many people who are ambivalent to Jesus and his ways. And God desires to entice and awaken a desire. And then there's those of us who are curious about Jesus and his ways. I would say we're the skeptics. God welcomes the questions. He welcomes us to push back and to press in and to make sure that what we're hearing is real and true. He, welcome, he welcomes it and he meets us there. And I would say largely, if they are the ambivalent and if they are the curious, then there are also those who are opposed. There are those who are opposed. And the, the difference is clear. It has to do with openness. Because all of us have a preconceived set of beliefs. All of us do. All of us come, none of us come to faith or come to explore faith without an already established set of things we believe to be true. And then you put into that the time in which we live and our culture has really strong things to say of what we should adopt to be true. And then you put our own emotions into things, our own backgrounds and our families and our education. You put everything in and all of a sudden we find ourselves in a place where we have to decide what is truth. And in that place, it is healthy to push and prod and challenge and question and doubt. Healthy. The only difference between skepticism and stubbornness is skepticism says, I will push and I will allow you to push back. I will question and I will allow you to question back. I will explore and I will allow you to explore. And stubbornness says, no. What I say is it. End of discussion. And that's the place, that's the place that will never allow faith to arise. The skepticism, it may be lifelong. I know I would be a lifer in that club. And you know what? Jesus is okay with that. I envy the ones who don't, don't question. And they believe without having to have questions answered. I, I truly envy them. It reminds me of my daughter when she is sitting on the edge of the pool. And not always, but sometimes she just leans in and jumps. <laughs> and I catch her. Or sitting on the edge of something and she just goes for it. It's like, I want that. But you know, God meets us in both places. We have to know this. There is a difference. There's a thin line. We have to be very cautious of it. Secondly, I want to say, you know what this reminds us of is that lies produce fear. Truth produces freedom. What does that mean? Well, it means that uh, a lot of times the reason we run away from truth is because we're afraid. And in our fear, you know what we do? We create lies. And oh, the lies that we weave. And in the lies that we weave, whenever those lies are threatened, you know what happens? That fear starts to become something of anger and frustration and anxiety and stress. And it just 
kind of creates this storm. It's no surprise to me that the Sanhedrin and the ones opposing Jesus were the ones who decided to incorporate deception and they were the ones who became enraged. They had all the power and they were enraged. Why? Because they were afraid. And yet the one who had received the grace of God in his own life by firstly admitting, here's the deal, he admitted what was true about Jesus, yes, but what was true about his own need first. Before he ever had to affirm what was true about Jesus publicly, he had to affirm what was true about his need privately. And in that place, he received the grace of God and he received the one who met him in his need. And here's the thing, this grace that he received, you know, a lot of times we think grace is, we, we might, whether we're familiar with it or not, with church or with religion or with faith or with what it looks like to follow Jesus, we might think it's all about forgiveness. And the best way I can put it is this way. Forgiveness gets us to like zero balance. We were in debt, forgiveness gets us to zero balance. That's great, no more debt. Yes, but then I need to buy something and I don't have any, so I gotta go back into debt. Forgiveness only goes so far, is my point. You know what grace does? Grace says, all right, you're forgiven, you're at zero debt, you owe nothing anymore, you don't have to earn any, any, anything anymore, you don't have to pay back anything, it's, it's gone, it's forgiven. But grace says, but now you have far more resource in the areas of virtue and life and passion and purpose and strength and forgiveness and mercy and gentleness. Now you are filled to the brim, overflowing of something coming out. Jesus said it's like a fountain birthing out of you of living water and it will come out of you endlessly, perpetually, an ever-renewable resource is what grace looks like. And in that place, in that place, then something inside of us starts to feel safe enough to say, well, if, if this is true, then I'm going to go ahead and examine what, um, what else is true about me. And here, what we discover is that truth humbles us, grace lifts us. Truth strengthens us, grace fuels us. Truth fortifies us, grace covers us. Truth can break us, grace restores us. Truth protects us, grace feeds us. Jesus did not come as one with a sledgehammer of truth. He came with the delicate balance of grace and truth to set us free. And freedom always leads to courage. Always. So, we may see the society around us in need, but we have to understand before we could ever help those around us, we must receive what Jesus wants to do inside of us. And we must be able to boldly stand in it, live in it, and affirm it. Because with Jesus, last thing I'll say, truth is always, always on our side. Always. Always. I think it's safe to say the Sanhedrin felt Jesus was opposed to them. And so they resisted him. And in their resistance of him, they became convinced that he was against them. Stephen discovered Jesus is for him. And in discovering that Jesus was for him, he became one who received him. 
and he received everything about Jesus and everything Jesus said about him. He is the one who gave it all for us. He didn't give it all to oppose us. He gave it all because he's for us. You know what truth says ultimately? We're so afraid of what it's going to say about us or not say about us. But in Jesus, you know what it says? It says we are loved. It says we have a purpose. It says that we have been created with value, intrinsic value. Every human being on the planet has been created with value beyond its recognition. It says that we have courage we do not know of because the spirit of the living God lives inside of us. That is truth. It says that our weaknesses will never push him away, that our flaws are never able to overcome his ability to create wholeness, that our darkness can never snuff out his light. That is his truth. It says that our past will not dominate our future. It says that we no longer need to live in the past. We can live in the present with hope in the future. It says that he is the one who is completely 100% true, because truth is not an idea or a concept or a theory. Truth is a person. And truth declared, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am for you. And he invites us to seek him, to become truth seekers. May that be the case. In a moment, we'll receive our time of giving our closing song. But I want to pray. God, thank you for the way that you um, are able to meet us and the gentleness and the grace that never condemns but promises life eternal. I pray that you would help us, God, courageously respond to you and receive all that you say is true. All that you say is true about us because of what you did on the cross and in the resurrection. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.